opens to 2 John. Look back a few pages to 1 John, and we will get started there for tonight. we got three books to cover. We'll see uh, how this goes time-wise. And then we also have the Lord's Supper. So a lot to do tonight. But these are, these are wonderful, awesome books of the Bible. They're small little books of the Bible. They're, they're situated towards the end of the New Testament. All three of these books are widely believed to be written by the Apostle John. Uh, I've talked with my kids a lot about this, uh, that John, the Apostle, has written five books in the Bible. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote Revelation. And he also wrote these three little epistles, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Now, we, most of us, uh, are probably fairly familiar with 1 John. Now, I mean, all of us here at First Baptist Fairdale should be because we just preached through it over the summer. Uh, and so we preached 1 John and looked at the message of 1 John and what all he gets into. And 1 John is a very beloved book. A lot of people have passages of 1 John memorized. There's some really good things that we know in, are in there, uh, some wonderful encouragements. And we'll dig more into that here in just a bit. But 2 John and 3 John are a little different. They are very widely ignored. They are tiny little books. 2 John is the second smallest book in the New Testament, but also in the whole Bible. And 3 John is the smallest book in the New Testament, and also the whole Bible. So these are two of the smallest books that we have fitted right here in our New Testament. But they are wonderful. And they contain some really amazing truth, specifically 3 John, which I'm, I'm really excited to talk about a little bit tonight. So what we're going to do is we're going to look specifically at 1 John first, since it's the biggest and the longest of these three books. And so we'll talk about that and what is the main purpose of 1 John, why is he writing, what is he trying to communicate. And then from there, we'll look at 2 John and 3 John. So uh, for, with hopefully you've got 1 John, you're open to 1 John. And 1 John is not addressed to any specific person. And when you look at the, the book and the way that it starts, it's very different from the other epistles. We've read through uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, things like that, where Paul writes specifically to churches in that area or in that region. And sometimes it's a specific church. Oftentimes it's meant to be a group of churches and that these letters were meant to be passed around. But 1 John is different. It's not addressed to a specific congregation or a specific area of the world. He starts out very much so like he starts the Gospel of John. And if you're familiar with the Gospel of John and the prologue, which is the first 18 verses, he starts by using a lot of creation imagery. Because John, in telling the story of Jesus, wants to start at the very beginning. And so when you read the Gospel of John, you're thinking the whole time, wow, this is very similar to the account of creation. He uses a lot of that creation-type imagery. And 1 John is somewhat similar. Read with me the first couple verses of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. First John, just like the Gospel of John, starts at the very beginning. That which was from the beginning. And he's making it clear from the beginning that Jesus, the one who was made manifest, is from the beginning. He did not begin to exist when he was born from the Virgin Mary. He has always existed. And he makes sure to make that clear at the beginning of this small little letter here. Now, this letter, even though it's not specifically addressed to a certain church or a certain region, it is likely that it would have been meant to be a circular letter. And what that means is it was meant to be passed around to multiple different churches. Likely, the seven churches that John specifically mentions in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. You know, he writes the, to the church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira, right? All those seven churches, it is likely that John had specific ministries in those churches or related to those churches. And he very well may have been writing this letter meant to be passed around to those churches. Now, the issues that John addresses in this letter are likely widespread. Okay, it is likely that there's multiple churches dealing with similar issues. And you, we understand things like this in our culture, right? Our culture has certain things in it that cause issues for Christians all over the United States. And so there are similarities in the issues that we deal with, but there's also differences. We understand that too. But John is writing to deal with some, some specific issues that are happening widespread. Okay, so there's lots of issues that are happening. And there are multiple churches that are dealing with these similar problems. So, there are two main things that John seeks to accomplish in this book of 1 John. The first is to confront false teaching. The first thing John is looking to do in this small little letter of 1 John is to confront false teaching. Okay, there are three ways that he does this. The first is bad doctrine. Okay, so look with me at John, 1 John chapter 2 and look at verse 22. He says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So the first issue is a doctrinal issue. And there are people who are denying that Jesus is the Savior. All right? They're denying that Jesus is the Messiah. And he is saying here in verse 2010, uh, 2 verse 22, that that person is a liar. All right? And it's clear that there are people who are trying to get this message across. They're trying to tell people that Jesus is not the true Messiah. There are religions in the world today that proclaim this. Judaism is one of those religions. Orthodox Judaism will reject Jesus as the Savior. They say that he did not fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and that he is not the Messiah. So they reject him. Islam is another religion that rejects Jesus as the Savior. They will accept Jesus as a prophet they believe that he really did come to earth, that he really is a real person, but they reject that he is the Savior. And so there may be other uh, sects or religions that think the same way, but John is saying to reject Jesus as the Savior is wrong. That is clearly opposed to what Jesus himself taught. 
Jesus himself clearly taught in the flesh that he was the Messiah, that he is the one who would save their pe the people, his people, from their sin. Okay, so the first issue is doctrinal. You see this again over in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. So there are people who are even denying that Jesus even came in the flesh. So the first one, people are denying, they're saying, yeah, Jesus came, but he's not the Messiah. He is not the Savior. He is not the one who can save you from your sins. And John says, that's false. That's a lie. But there are other people who are even saying Jesus never even came in the flesh, that that never even happened. And so, of course, John is saying that is the spirit of the Antichrist. That is someone who is definitely, without doubt, trying to lead you astray. Jesus, without a doubt, did come. He was made manifest, as John made clear in the very opening verses of this book. And he is the Savior. He is the one who is able to save us from our sins. And so he confronts this false teaching of bad doctrine. Um, look with, So the first couple of verses, he makes that clear. But also look back. At, talking about Jesus, he says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation is a big word, and he uses it again over in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 10. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he had loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so to the people who would say that Jesus is not the Messiah, and to those who would say that Jesus has not even come in the flesh, John would say, that's wrong. And as a matter of fact, Jesus is the only way that God's wrath can be satisfied. That's what that word propitiation is getting at. It is God's wrath against sin being satisfied. And John is saying, without Jesus, there is no satisfying God's wrath against sin. You cannot do it on your own. And so if you want to believe that Jesus is not the Messiah, there is no propitiation for your sins. You have to bear your own sins. And if he did not come in the flesh, then you have to bear your own sins. There is no other way to be forgiven of our sins but to believe that Jesus himself did come in the flesh, that he is the Messiah, and that through him we receive forgiveness, and that God pours his wrath out against our sins on Jesus. So he confronts that the doctrine, the false, uh, false doctrine that's being taught. The second thing that he confronts with this false teaching is morality. All right, look with me at chapter 1. So people are teaching things that are false. We call that doctrine. But they're also minimizing the seriousness of sin. Look at verses uh, 6 through 10 of chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, 
we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In verse 7, he says, uh, sorry, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There are people teaching that we can have fellowship with God while living in sin. And John says, that's wrong. We cannot continue living in sin and saying we have fellowship with God. The two are incompatible. And John is saying that is a false morality, right? That there are people teaching that the way we live doesn't truly matter. That as long as you're believing in Jesus, you're okay. But what John also knows is that the believing in Jesus comes with a, a life transformation. It means that God will change our lives and that we will live in such a way to honor him. And so it's incompatible to say we have fellowship with God, but yet continue living sinfully. Those two things do not go together. Look also at chapter 2, verses, two uh, verses 3 and 4. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected by this that we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So again, John is making it crystal clear that if we say that we're believing in him, if we say we know him, but yet we're not keeping his commandments, we're not living in obedience to him, that's saying that we don't know him. Our life is living out proof or lived out proof that we don't believe him, that we don't know him. Because if we did, it would change the way we live. We would live in obedience to him rather than just living however we want. There's a lot of people in the world today that will say you can believe in God and yet live however you want. Because we want the benefits of knowing God, the beautiful assurance of eternal life, being in paradise with him. That sounds great, doesn't it? And so, so many people will say, oh, you can have that. You just got to say that you believe in God. We've got to walk the aisle. And then act like the rest of our life doesn't matter. Like the way that we live has no bearing on that. And John says, we reject that. If you are believing in Jesus, if you are walking with him, if you're saying that you know him, it will change the way you live your life. You will live in obedience to his command. That is the way it works. Uh, our, our relationship with God has massive implications for how we live. What we believe about God changes the way that we live. And that's important. We need to know that. The third thing uh, that he confronts with this false teaching is the way that we at, interact socially. Okay, social interactions. So can, uh, still in chapter 2, look at verses 9 and verses 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. That's verse 9. Verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John says, believing in God and walking with him will essentially mean that we must love one another. One of the things that the Bible teaches 
is that when we believe in Jesus, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. And the Holy Spirit loves the Holy Spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in me and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, there is naturally going to be a love that the Holy Spirit puts inside of me for people that the Holy Spirit is also dwelling inside of. We are going to love one another. And John is saying, because he's heard it from Jesus, that that is the way people will know that we are his disciples. Love for one another. Jesus himself told the disciples that. And John is saying, if you say that you have fellowship with God and yet you don't love one another, there's something wrong with that picture. That is not real, true, genuine Christianity. To love God does mean loving one another. Look over at chapter 3, verse 14. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know we're confident of our salvation because we love the brothers. But look also over at chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his own brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Loving one another is an essential aspect of living out Christianity. And so one of the big things that John does in this small letter of 1 John is he confronts this false teaching. He confronts false doctrine, bad morality, and the way that we treat one another or our social interactions. But another thing that John wants to accomplish in this small little book is to reassure believers. He wants to reassure believers of their salvation. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 13. This is known, really, as the summary statement of the book, or the whole reason that he's writing. Verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He says, the whole reason that I'm writing this book is so that you would know you have eternal life. The whole reason that he's pointing out this issue with the doctrine that's being taught the morality that's being taught, the social interactions that are being taught that are false. He's saying, I want you to know that if you love the brothers, that is a good indicator that you are trusting in Christ, that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart to love other people in whom the Holy Spirit is indwelling. John is writing this book to assure believers that they can know that they are saved. If you, if you know anybody who is struggling with the assurance of their salvation, or if you yourself are struggling to know whether or not you are saved, 1 John is a fantastic book for you to study, for you to read, because John is writing for that very purpose, so that you would know what's right and what's wrong. You would know what doctrine to believe and accept and what to reject, and that you would know that you have eternal life. John wants us to be Christians who are sure of our salvation. Not unsure, not timid, but confident in the, the salvation that we have in Jesus. That's one of the main things that he writes about. And so, 
Again, there's lots of other stuff in the book, but you'll have to go back and listen to all of our sermons over the summer if you want that. But moving on. So that's 1 John in a nutshell. And uh, I don't remember exactly what, uh, what the product was or what company did it. I think it was for a diet soda or maybe like one of those zero calorie sodas. Uh, and the, the tagline was zero calories, same great taste. Anybody remember that? Maybe it's Dr. Pepper. I don't know. Uh, but 2 John is very similar to 1 John in that it's almost like less words, same great message, right? Second uh, John is very similar to 1 John in the content, in the things that John is, is talking about in the letter, okay? So with a, a good understanding of 1 John, you'll see that a lot of the same things are present in 2 John. Uh, what's interesting about this letter is who it's addressed to. If you look at the very first verse of 2 John, it's addressed as the elder to the elect lady and her children. So there's a lot of discussion about, well, who is this elect lady and her children? Some people think that it's actually a specific woman and her children that John is writing to. Some people think that uh, this is a cryptic address to a specific church, and the church is being referred to as a woman, uh, with the children being the members of the church. Some people think that. And then others also think that it could be written specifically to a lady who is hosting a church at her house. And so the children would be the church that meets in her house. So it could be, could be some of those. I think, based on the content of what's written in this letter, that it's not likely a specific woman and her children. It's more likely a church or a, a body of believers that he is addressing <clears throat> throughout the book. But the main point uh, is that we should live according to the truth and continue practicing Christian love. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. And again, 2 John only has, uh, well, it doesn't have any chapter divisions, so there's just one chapter. Verses 5 and 6 say this. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that you love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to the commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So one of John's main concerns here is that these believers should continue walking in the truth and continue living in according to the commands that have been given to us. And so, again, this is very similar to what he said in 1 John. He talked about we need to continue in the truth. We need to be believing the truth, but also walking in the truth and walking in the commandments. Part of living in the truth is knowing what God has commanded to us and living in obedience to that. That's a big aspect of what John uh, goes over, over, over and over again. So 2 John, he hits that again right here, and he makes that a big point. But he also deals with some false teaching in 2 John. And so you see that is present here as well. So look with me at verses 7 through 11, uh, what we, the rest of what we read for our call to worship. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So that's similar to what he talked about in 1 John. There were also people in 1 John that were rejecting that Jesus had actually come in the flesh, and so he's dealing with that again. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Verse 8, watch yourselves, 
so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Again, he doesn't say it specifically the same way he did in 1 John, but he's saying abide in the truth. Right? He's saying abide in the teaching, the teaching of Christ, which is the truth. Right? What Jesus taught is truth. And he's saying abide in that teaching, abide in the truth. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And so, John, once again, writing to perhaps a specific church in this situation rather than a group of churches, and basically saying the same things. Highlighting the fact that we need to be vigilant and watch out that there are people who are teaching things that are contradicting the truth. They are neglecting the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. They're saying he didn't. They're also saying he's not the Messiah. And John is saying, reject all that. You focus on the truth. And what focusing on the truth always leads to is living in obedience to his command. And so he highlights that again here in 2 John. So, like I said at the beginning, it's like less words, but the same really good message in 2 John. Now we come to the last one, 3 John. And 3 John is a little bit different from 1 and 2 John. Okay? It's not like the zero-calorie version of the Coke. This is a little different. This is a totally different flavor. It's like cherry Coke or something, right? So, this seems to be addressed to a specific individual. Right, Just like 2 John seemed to be addressed to uh, a church, a specific church, this one is addressed to a specific individual, and we have his name in the greeting. Verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So there's this guy named Gaius. We don't know exactly what church he's a part of, but we know that John knows him, and John is writing specifically to this man. Now, there are a few other people named Gaius that we'll find in the Bible. If you do a search for that name, you'll find some other ones, some traveling companions for Paul, things like that. Um, there's really not a whole lot of evidence to know if this might be the same as any of those other ones. Uh, a lot of people believe that Gaius was a very popular name during this time, and so it's likely that this was not at all connected to any of those other uh, instances of, of this name, Gaius. And so we're not uh, to think too deeply about that or try and connect all those dots or anything like that. This is probably someone who's not at all connected to those people. So, what's interesting about 3 John is that uh, Gaius, this guy named Gaius, is commended for walking in the truth. So again, we've seen this already in 1 John and 2 John. He is encouraging us to walk in the truth. And we're going to see that he does this to Gaius. Look at verse 3. He says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. So this Gaius guy is doing what John has been commanding in his other letters. He's commanding people, hey, walk in the truth. Okay? Don't, don't flee from it. Don't, don't stray from it. Keep believing the truth and walk in the truth. And he's commending Gaius for doing exactly that. Verse 4, we kind of get to see our, the true heart of John as a minister, as, as a minister of the gospel, as an apostle. All right, look at what he says in verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, 
we don't believe that Gaius is actually John's child, but he is a spiritual child. Perhaps he's one that John has discipled, that John is very dear to or close to. And John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The people that John has taught, the people that he's given his life to, to hear that they are continuing in the truth brings John a whole lot of joy. And I think I can speak on behalf of all of us pastors here. Uh, when it comes to October and pastor appreciation, the greatest pastor appreciation gift is to know that you are walking in the truth. Living out the truth. Walking in the commands of God. That is a great pastor appreciation gift. Right? And John is saying that brings him joy. And I'm telling you, that still brings ministers joy. To know that the people that are under our care are walking in the truth. That brings joy to a minister. So John says that. The next thing is really fascinating. Really fascinating. Look with me at verses 5 through 8. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, he's talking about these brothers. We don't know a whole lot about them, but look what we do know in verse 7. For they have gone out for the sake of the name. The name being Jesus. They have gone out, meaning they have left their home, and they have gone other places for the sake of the name. They're ministers. They are leaving their home, and they are going to new places, and they are proclaiming the name of Jesus. They are doing gospel ministry. They are bringing the gospel to places where perhaps it had been not preached before, and they are telling people about Jesus. They are doing gospel work. They are doing what we would call now missionary work. And look at what he says to Gaius. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. And so he's commending Gaius for the way that he has welcomed these brothers, these people who have been sent out for the sake of God's name. They are doing this work of ministry. They are perhaps missionaries, maybe early missionaries we would call them. And then look what he says next. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Well, that's kind of a strange thing. I think what John is saying here is he's saying it's good for us to take care of the people who are going and doing gospel ministry. To send them on their way in a manner worthy of God means that we are caring for them and providing for their needs the way God cares for his people. And God cares for our needs, provides for our needs. And he is commending Gaius for doing this. And then look what he says in verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. John is saying, if we know people who are being sent out for the name, they are going to new places, bringing the gospel message, we ought to support these people so that we may be fellow workers for the truth. We've got multiple families in our church now that are in the process of doing this very thing. 
being sent out for the name, being sent out for the sake of Jesus, that Jesus has called them to go and serve in a place that is not their home. And it's going to be a really difficult thing for them to do. They're going to have to learn a completely new language. They're going to have to learn a completely new culture. They're going to have to learn all kinds of things for the sake of making Jesus known to people that maybe have never heard of him before. And John writing here to this guy named Gaius says, it is good that we should support them. And so I want to say to you all tonight, perhaps you already know this, it is good for us to be supporters of the Hoovers and the Hughes and the Herods. They specifically, now we already know the uh, Marcus and Rachel, the Laymans, right? We are already supporting them. They are doing this gospel work in Bible translation, right? But we also have these three young families that are part of us currently who are in the process of being sent out for the sake of the name. And the words of the, of the Apostle John here are so good for us to hear. It is good for us to support them. Why? So that we may be fellow workers for the truth. You see, to support people who are being sent out for the sake of the name makes us fellow workers for the truth. The reality is not all of us are called to go overseas and to be missionaries. We know that. But we are called to support those who are. Whether that be financial whether that be through praying, whether that be any other means that you can think of. There are lots of ways to support these people. And John is, who are being sent out for the sake of the name among us. We should take this very seriously. We should really ponder on what does it mean for me to support those who are being sent out for the sake of the name. It's an awesome, awesome passage here in 3 John. But then you'll notice that the, the letter takes a really sharp turn in verse 9. He says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to, puts them out of the church. An interesting shift in the letter, right? It's been a really encouraging letter up to this point, and he's just praising Gaius for the way that he's treated these missionaries who are, who are traveling. And now he says, there's this guy named Diotrephes. And he's basically saying, do not be like Diotrephes. It seems as if Diotrephes has taken over a church and has become the leader of the church, right? It says he loves to put himself first. It's more than likely that he has made himself a leader in whatever church he's talking about. And he says, I have written something to the church, perhaps the church that Diotrephes took over. Now, it's likely that we don't have this letter, perhaps because Diotrephes read it and shredded it. Uh, we don't know. But look at what he says about it. He likes to put himself first. He does not acknowledge our authority, so he doesn't recognize John as the apostle. He says, if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing. He's talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. The brothers are the, the very same people that John just commended Gaius for welcoming and for sending on their way in a manner worthy of God and for supporting them. He says, and he also stops those who want to support the brothers. 
Not only is he not supporting the brothers, he is stopping others from supporting those brothers, and he's putting them out of the church if they do. This is a huge contrast to what John has been saying to Gaius. Gaius, he commends for how he's treated these missionaries, and he's saying Diotrephes is the exact opposite. Now notice what he says next. Verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. He's saying don't be like Diotrephes. He has rejected the truth. He is not walking in the truth. He is not caring for those who are being sent out for the sake of God's name. And then he mentions another guy. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. In verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. And from the truth itself, we also add our testimony that you uh, may know that our testimony is true. Now, this other guy, Demetrius, we don't know a ton about. It's likely he's the person who brought this letter from John to Gaius. But he also has a good testimony. He is believing the truth. He is walking in the truth. And so it's likely that John is lifting this guy up as another example of who to follow. He's saying, do not be like Diotrephes. I'll deal with him when I get a chance. He's saying, what you are doing is commendable, but also look at the example of Demetrius. He has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. He is an exemplary individual for who you should look to and emulate. And then we get to the end of the letter, which is very similar to 2 John. He says, I have much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. So it's a sudden ending. And he says, I've got a lot more to say, but I'd rather come and, and talk to you in person rather than write with, uh, with pen and paper. And so that's it. That's, that's the end of this third letter. But it's very clear from looking at 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John that there are some major themes that John carries throughout his writings. And this even goes back to his Gospel of John as well. John is greatly concerned that God's people would be walking in the truth. And so for all of us who are reading these books in 2023, about to be 2024, John is concerned that if we're calling ourselves believers, we ought to be walking in the truth. Walking in the truth will always manifest itself in the way that we treat one another. But we should observe our hearts. How do we feel towards one another that is in our midst? How do we feel about the people that we come together on Sundays and Wednesdays and worship the Lord with? Do we love them? Is there a, a care and compassion in us for one another? It's a big indicator for where our heart is at and whether or not we are truly believing and trusting in Jesus. And that's what John says we should look to. Continue in the truth. Love one another. That will be assurance that you truly are walking in the truth. That you truly are believing in Jesus as the Savior. So examine yourself regularly. Look for these things. Be encouraged that when you see these signs, we are loving one another. That should give us confidence that we are walking in the truth. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for this evening and thankful for uh, these three short little books. God, we ask now that as we are about to take the Lord's Supper, that you would bless this Lord's Supper that we take together, that it would be a strong reminder of what you have accomplished for us at the cross, that your body was broken and your blood was shed. 
God, we thank you for this, uh, for the words that we have here in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We ask your blessing on our time here tonight. We pray in Jesus' name.